Finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. And this is a podcast where we read things. Sometimes we read a whole bunch of things in a big list, and we'll talk about it in the latter half of the show. In the first half of the show, oh, Andrea is my mom and a librarian, and I'm not my mom or a librarian. I did work in a library at one point, but that, not anymore. Anyway. Uh, it was your mom's library? It, it was my mom's library. <laughs> True. <laughs> Um, so we so we just drank a lot of coffee. We and did. Now we're ready to podcast. We got a we found a mocha pot for super cheap in a thrift shop a few weeks ago, and uh, it's been it's really been paying its weight <laughs> in uh, coffee. Anyway, we read "The Word for World Is Forest" by Ursula K. Le Guin, one of my favorite writers. We talked about her a ton on this show. Well, spoiler alert for the latter half of the show. We're going to talk about Andrea finishing... It feels weird to call her Andrea. We're going to talk about Andrea finishing her uh, endeavor to read all the Hugo Award winners for Best Novels. And Ursula Le Guin is a multiple-time Hugo Award winner. And this book actually won the Hugo Award for Best Novella. Uh, when did it win? Do you, do you know the year off the top of your head? Because I know it was originally published... In 72, I think, in one of the Dangerous Visions anthologies, the, the Harlan Ellison edited anthologies. And then it was published on its own a couple of years later. It looks like it was published in the anthology in 72, and she won the Hugo Novella Award for it in 73. Okay. And then after she won the Hugo, then it was published as a standalone novel. I wonder if the decision to publish it as a standalone was driven by the fact that it won the award. I think so, because the edition that we had, that we read, the cover says Hugo Award winning. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of good covers for this book. We read the one that has a sort of, um, it's almost like impressionistic, like pastoral painting of like a forest with a woman's face in it, which doesn't really have a ton to do with the book. No, but I think that's very 70s. It, it sort is, of has a very 70s Earth Mother environmental vibe. Which is appropriate because this book is, despite the fact that it came out in the early 70s, is very 70s. There's stuff about dream states and collective unconscious. It's got environmental themes. It's got a, a, a Vietnam War metaphor. I think this is like her most crunchy style because you when she starts writing things like the dispossessed and the left hand of darkness she sort of has a very streamlined um minimalist style and this is much more lush i guess because it takes place on a forest planet it feels more um yeah i would not really in the way that one might call somebody like uh herbert uh frank herbert or kim stanley robinson like an ecological science fiction writer I don't think I would ever really, except for this book, and maybe uh, there's a short story about a sentient forest called Vast as Empires and More Slow, except for those, I don't think I would really call Le Guin an ecological writer. I would call her more of like a sociological sci-fi writer. Yeah, I think so. And I think when I was thinking about the themes of this novella, I put environmental issues as the last. And I, I put anti-war or anti-military science fiction as the number one theme of this story it's the ecological stuff is there and it's brought up a few times 
but it's definitely more concerned with uh, exploring sort of anti-colonialist, anti-military themes, and just the concept of aggression is like a big fixation of this novel. Well, why don't you start by telling us sort of the overall plot of this novella, and then also, because this is part of the Hainish cycle, it's part of the world that she built, explain where this fits into that world. Okay, so the Hainish cycle, for people that don't know, is a sort of overarching sci-fi setting that Le Guin has written a ton of stuff in. Some of her most famous works are are in the Hainish cycle, like The Dispossessed and The Left Hand of Darkness, which you know we've already brought up. And the idea behind the Hainish cycle is, I would almost explain it as like Star Trek, but with no aliens. So it's also a lot like the uh, Larry Niven's known space universe in that it doesn't really... Evolution does not quite work the way that it works in the real world in the Hainish universe. In the Hainish universe, a progenitor race of near-humans from uh, evolved on a planet called Hain. Those are the titular Hainish. And they seeded, through like a colonization effort, seeded sentient life throughout the galaxy. And so the, the universe is kind of divided between divided up into a couple periods of history. This is one of the earliest set stories in the Hainish cycle. The earliest one is probably, unless I'm missing a couple like short stories here and there, the earliest one is probably The Dispossessed. And in The Dispossessed, there people are aware of the humans on other planets and of the Hain, but they have not established the League of Worlds, which is sort of like a intragalactic love. Well, like League of Nations. And they don't have the Ansible yet, which is this inter, uh, fashion-like communication device, which is kind of the linchpin of this whole universe. But they have the idea for it in The Dispossessed. This is set uh, at the establishment of the League of Worlds. That happens in the story. And the invention of the Ansible is like a new thing. At some point, the League of Worlds collapses under the threat of another... It, these guys called the Shing, which may or may not be aliens or might just be more evolved humans that have, like, psychic powers. And that stuff's dealt with in Rogue Cannon's world and City of Illusions. And then at some point, the Shing are repelled and the successor to the League of Worlds, which is like, you know, like their version of the United Nations, which is called Ecumen, rises. And Ecumen is important in, like, the Left Hand of Darkness and, uh, you know, the later set stories. And so this is sort of at the middle point of the history of this universe. And we get a couple references to, there's a, a Hainish character shows up, a Setian shows up, which are the uh, people from The Dispossessed. Right. And so this story is about a attempt by the Terrans, who are, you know, Earthlings. So are all, most of the people, most of the worlds that are populated in the Hainish cycle are evolved from human travelers into space or just spawn just in different worlds human type of so in the distant the hain are the 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 source of everything in the distant past the hain colonizers terraformed and colonized a bunch of worlds all the sentient races except for maybe the shing but it's unclear the shing might also be descended from the hainish are descended from the Hainish and are genetically mostly identical to humans. At some point, Hainish civilization collapses 
and travel between worlds stops until the period of like when the dispossessed happens. It almost reminds me a little bit of Larry Niven's Ring World, where that's what I brought up when I mentioned the known space. Ring World is in the known space universe. Yeah, so like when you know in the beginning, the first book of the Ring World series, they're looking at this sort of culture that they don't understand that's been established before they were aware of it. And it's almost like they're like the characters from Le Guin's world, sort of built, living in the same kind of universe. Yeah, there's... A, the, they're the, all space-traveling humans or higher intelligence, but they have um, human-like tendencies that make them, like, fallible. Yeah, I mean, you can definitely draw a parallel between the Hainish and the uh, the, pock, the pack or Pock from Ringworld, and they're, like, this progenitor race and they established all of this technology that kind of like fell into ruin at some point and is now being rediscovered except the Hainer the Hainish are more active and peaceful in the setting than the Pac are in the known space stuff except in this novella so well, the, the, <laughs> these are the Terrans who are the bad guys in right. this who are us they're they're earthmen mm-hmm. so what's happening in this is the Terrans are trying to establish a logging colony on this forest planet called Athshi. This is kind of like a gritty Ewok story. Mm-hmm. And Athshi is populated by a sentient race who, if you know about the... It's not directly really dealt with in... It's like referenced obliquely in this, but if you're familiar with the mythology of the Hainish cycle, then you know that the Athshians are essentially human. But they're presented as alien, at least initially. I think, I mean, well, I think it really helps to know that Le Guin's father was an anthropologist. Yeah, so the, an, anthrop- in the, an anthropologist is one of the main characters in Right, this. and I think it shows in a lot of her writing when two different species or two different sets of people meet that it's almost like she's describing it like from a third point of view where she's observing them and almost like she as the writer is the anthropologist so this novella has omniscient third person narration but it kind of slides in and out of the perspectives of three main characters so so they're those characters are don davison who's the colonial captain uh who's trying to help establish this logging colony and he is awful he is chauvinistic uh, racist, xenophobic, you know, uh, this near psychotic, possibly actually psychotic right wing strong man, kind of a, a a dark take on like a John Wayne type character, yeah. and then in con- direct conflict with him is Selver, who's a native Athshian, who leads a guerrilla revolt against the Terran colonizers, and then caught in the middle of them is Captain air quotes. Raj Lubov, who is the anthropologist, who is not actually a military guy, but he's given given the title of captain to make it easier for him to deal with the majority military colonial force on Athshi. I think what's interesting about the construction of this novella, and I think this is why it feels really almost organic and kind of like um, natural, is that it's told from the three point of views, and each chapter 
It's told to, the point of view is from that character, mm-hmm. and some of them are first person, and some of them are second person, and there's even a third person point of view. So it sort of changes the way that you see this really tight set of events that happens within a short period of time. Whatever character is the point of view character at any given moment, you spend a lot of time in their head with their thoughts. I mean, the novel opens really aggressively with the first chapter being told from Davison's point of view, and you just get blasted with all of these guys' like aggro, negative perspective on this whole world. So, so what's going on is the Terrans are establishing this colony, and they're logging, and they're sending wood back to Earth. But they're not in direct communication with Earth because they don't have the Ansible yet. So they're sort of on their own. And there's a little bit of a Heart of Darkness p- apocalypse now thing going on with Davison. And they're, they, they have this policy of a voluntary labor force where they recruit whoever is native to the planet to help them with the colonization ever, but they've sort of twisted this into a turning the Ashians into a slave caste. Davison continually refers to them by the term Creechy, which I think that the story does a nice, not a nice, but does an interesting little trick where we're given Creechy way before we're given any other name for these people. And it initially feels like, oh, that's what they're called. They're the Creechies. They're like, that's the na- right name of their race. And then as the story, as soon as it switches to another perspective, you realize that's a slur. Well, I think in the plot, it's pretty clear that the Terrans, who who now are, in air quotes, occupying this planet, which they've renamed New Tahiti. Yeah. Just sort of, you know, that's a, this is the sort of, this is the setup for her comment on colonialism. So you have a human-based society taking over this planet of these forest-dwelling natives. So, yes. And then they create this logging industry where this, the the Actians, Mm -hmm. they're forest-based and their religion is based on worshipping nature. And they're nighttime-dwelling creatures, so they have been forced to work in these camps doing things the way that the humans are doing. Their, their sleep schedule is weird because they're not fully nocturnal. They have like, um, what's the word? Polyphasic? Yeah. Sleep schedule. They sleep intermittently throughout the day. So they the Ashleyans, while presumably being genetically pretty identical to humans, they're smaller. They have more sort of like body hair to the point where they appear to be sort of covered in greenish fur. Which, I, I wonder if it's greenish because they sleep a lot and maybe they're like sloths. Well, I think and they have a weird relationship to dreaming. They can dream while they're awake. They can force themselves to dream. They do a lot of lucid dreaming. And they sort of split their perception of the world into two different but equally valid spaces. The, uh, the dream world and what's the other one called? It's not the real world, because they don't consider one to be... Oh, it's the dream time and the world time. That's what it is. But you can tell they're being enslaved because one of the comments that Davison makes is that because they like to take these intermittent naps or they like to do their meditation, their dreaming during, like, sporadically through the day, 
that he considers them lazy because they don't work in the same way that the humans work. And they don't try to integrate themselves because that's what you find when you when you talk about... Well, it's more than they're just taking naps because there's a... Well, wait. I want to finish. Okay, sure. I'm sorry. So when you talk to Lubev... Lub- yeah, Lubev, he, Lubov. He's the anthropologist. He's observing the Ashtians and he's trying to figure out their culture and their belief system. And Davison also is disparaging of him because he, in his mind, is also not his equal because he comes from an Indian descent. Yeah, see, the, the novel does a good... Davison is... He's one of these characters where I think, like, five years earlier, maybe... I would say that he was unrealistic. But he is a frighteningly realistic portrayal of a bigot. And they do a nice job of showing that bigotry is not isolated. This guy is xenophobic against the 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 Ashtians, but he's also racist against, you know, at least in this, Asians and, uh, what does he call Hindu forms? Is what he refers to Indian people as, and he's also anti-intellectual. But see, I kind of see the Ashleyans as almost like representative of sort of um, maybe like a First Nations, or you know, in the seventies there was a lot of exploration for like um, rainforest tribes and sort of that kind of thing. But I think it's very clear that despite the fact that the Terrans are... They're almost like an evil corporation because they go to a forest-based planet Mm -hmm. and they start logging it. Like, that's colonialism right there. That's, like, world domination. They're going there. They're not going there to explore that planet and to make connections and to start trade relations. They're there to strip that country that world of its logs and then they're done and they plan they already have a plan that in three years they're leaving that planet and they don't care what happens yeah so davison enslaves the ashleyans he calls them the creatures he separates the females from the males and the males become workers and the females become servants and then selvar who is the leader of his tribe when they lived in the forest. He's a great dreamer. That's what his he's, title. Yes, he's a great dreamer. So he's a spiritual leader. He's also sort of a mentor for the tribe because the tribe is like, they're non-aggressive. They don't believe in violence. They're pacifists. They believe in like sharing and helping and caring. And they're like planet oriented. They care about the trees. Like all of their names are based on trees their tribes are named after different trees and plants. And they're really connected to sort of the earth culture. Yeah. So the thing I wanted to say about the the dreams is I think it's... the Their relationship to the dreams is really interesting. And there are some ideas in this that Le Guin explores later in The Lathe of Heaven. But it's not that it's just that they sleep intermittently throughout the day or they take naps. Dreaming, because they don't draw as hard a... Uh, distinction between the conscious and subconscious mind as humans do. Dreaming is part of their thought process. So when they're trying to figure something out or figure out what they need to do, they enter into and out of a dream state at will. So not allowing them to do that cuts them off from a significant part of their thought process. And they see people that don't dream or can't dream as, you know, suffering and being ill in some way or even being insane. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's very clear the way that the character, just within the short eight chapters, Davison goes from being this sort of asshole, like plantation, you know, manager who's sort of lording over these Ashtians and how and forcing the devil. Yeah, to to being almost like you know a character straight out of Apocalypse Now. The last three chapters of this novella are super intense. And this is when it goes from being like, okay, this is a comment on colonialism to this is a direct comment about what's going on in Vietnam and during the war. Because he just, he goes ballistic. Yeah. Let me, he just loses his mind. Let me give the quick plot rundown. So Davidson takes a, a leave from his post at Smithville. That's the name of his outpost to go to Centralville, which is the HQ uh, because they got a fresh shipment of ladies in, and he's evil and horny. And when he comes... Can you just imagine him, like, wearing, like, a white, like, suit, just all sweaty and gross? You know, like... I was imagining him throughout this with, like, uh, coveralls on, but stripped down to the waist. Uh, and with a big mustache. Oof. Yeah. So he's, he's very similar to... Uh, Avatar ripped this book off a lot. I think, and he's very he's he's very similar to Stephen Lang's character in Avatar. Uh, so he, on his way back, finds that Smithville has been burnt to the ground by a creature. Nah, nope, I shouldn't call him that. That's a slur. By an Ashtian uprising, which has been led by Selver, who had before the start of the novel attacked. Uh, he had attacked Davison, and then mysteriously stopped his assault at some point once Davison had been knocked down. And what we find out is that the Astheans don't have intraspecies aggression. They don't hurt uh, other people. They hunt animals, but they don't hurt other people. And they have these sort of programmed in non-aggression responses to positions of submission. This is one of my favorite things where they where you find out that they love competitive singing. Yeah, they they <laughs> they, they settle their differences between with competitive singing competitions. And so when uh, Davison meets Selver in the aftermath of the attack, uh, Selver knocks him down and sings over him to, like, essentially counting coup on him. And what we find out is that uh, Davison is a rapist, and he has raped multiple Ashtian women, and including Selver's wife, and which resulted in her death. And this act is so monstrous that it breaks Selver's ability to, essentially to empathize with humans. And Selver ceases to see ter- the Terrans as people and thus can kill them and can teach the other Ashleyans how to kill them. Selver was also previously the friend and assistant to Lubav and they taught each other about their cultures and he attempted to teach Lubav how to dream, but he couldn't quite pull it off eventually some representatives from after the initial attack Selver and his forces retreat into the wilderness as you know sort of i think under the assumption that this act of aggression will teach the terrans not to fuck with them anymore which doesn't work it just hardens davison's resolve and he begins carrying out brutal firebombing attacks on the ashtians at the same time some representatives from the league of worlds show up and they deliver the ansible and they try to form a response to 
the uh, the conflict between the Astrians and the Terrans, which we can talk about in a little more detail later. And eventually, Davison's continued aggression escalates to the point where the Astrians wipe out Centralville, the HQ of the Terran colonial effort. They sequester, they kill all the women and yes. sequester all the men, because they're a matriarchal society. And the women are the mostly the hunters and the warriors. And they sequester all the men in one specific area and tell them when the ship arrives in three years, we won't mess with you. As if you don't mess with us, you can stay in this one specific area, and when the ship arrives in three years, you'll all leave. And then Davison continues to fight. He is eventually defeated by Selver, who exiles him to Dump Island, which is like a small deforested island where they've been like dumping trash on stuff. And that is the end of the novel. Oh, well, it's, I guess it ends with the ship comes, Selver gives Lubov's notes to them, and they... Uh, have a, they tell them that uh, the League of Worlds won't try to colonize this world, but maybe after a few generations they'll send some scientists and explorers who will make peaceful contact with the Ashdans. I think it's important to note halfway through the story when the um, overseers come and they start talking and they start investigating why they're having these uprisings. They tell Davison to stop. Yeah. And he doesn't stop. And he, and in essence, runs away with a bunch of followers who feel the same way that he has. And this is when the story really starts to feel like it's a comment on the Vietnam War. He yeah. leaves, he, he steals three helicopters. I mean, this is when Davison himself just becomes America the man. Yes. And he is, he takes great joy in. Which is kind of exactly what you were seeing on the televisions, on the nightly news coming out of Vietnam. You saw giant chopters and napalm being dropped and, and forest fighting. You know, there's, there's, so you, he, in essence, starts his own Vietnam War. And like you said, becomes the symbol of America in that war. Yeah, and then so you have the, the League of Planets and the Colonial Administration become this kind of stand-in for the UN. They're very ineffectual and toothless their response to this colonial aggression is just stop doing it. And they at no point try to address the underlying causes. There's no attempt at any sort of like restorative justice. It's just, hey, stop. It's not cool. And without addressing those underlying problems, they essentially give free reign to Davison to just go rogue under their noses and do whatever the fuck he wants. And I think this is also when Lubrov he kind of realizes that there's no way for him to make peace. Because once he starts, once Davison starts going off the rails and dropping the napalm, he's not only attacking the Ashians, he's attacking their planet, which they have a deep connection to. So he is destroying the forest mm -hmm. in a worse way than the mining was. And I think that's why they, they continue to fight. I think the most chilling part of this is when Selver captures the humans and he, he's keeping them in this corral, which is where they were kept themselves when they were prisoners. Yeah, and, and he apologizes for it, too. Right, but he's apologizing because he's in danger. He doesn't ever have a redemptive Oh, no, no, I'm saying Selver apologizes to the humans oh. for keeping them in the conditions they kept him in and at no point attempted to apologize or reconcile with them over but I think he, but this is how twisted Davison has become because he tells Selver that Selver should be grateful to him for giving him the gift 
which is what he calls the gift of violence, the gift of murder. I don't think Davison even really gets that. Selver is the one who talks about this, that, that Davison... Selver becomes a god throughout the story. One of my favorite pieces of this story is right after the attack on Centralville, Selver is walking through the forest and he encounters an elderly dreamer, wise man character. And that guy asks him, are you of the dream time or the world time? Which is really interesting because it implies that like, they will sometimes meet people in the dream time and not be able to tell if they're real people or not. Not real people, but like be able to tell if there are people that exist in the dream or people that exist in the real world. And apparently they're, they're compelled to tell the truth or, or he wouldn't have asked that question. But then he says to Selver, I took you for a god. We find out that the word for god and the word for translator are the same. And that essentially Selver is a god because he has introduced a new concept to them, which is like war and aggression. And because Davison introduced that concept to Selver, Davison is also a god. But do you think that... So we find out earlier in the story, one, the Ashleyans can't kill unless they do not view the person they are killing as a person. Uh, two, when there are Ashleyans that are too dangerous to be allowed around the group, they're exiled to islands. Selver, at the end, doesn't kill Davison and exiles to him, him to an island. Uh, do you think that is supposed to be read as Selver acknowledging that him and Davison have become alike? That he sees himself in Davison and thus cannot kill Davison? I think so. It's kind of like you know that whole that like and I think this is interesting because Le Guin is also very interested in Taoism and well, she did a whole translation of the Tao Te Ching. Right. So she's in, into that and one of the concepts is like if you look into the darkness for too long then the darkness looks back and it's kind of the same thing like he went to Selver went to the dark side when he saw revenge against Davison and then he realized like you said he didn't he didn't give him the gift of murder he just enabled that concept to come into their society and now it's there but it's also like it's weird because the Ashleyans can't can't learn to kill when they learn to view certain people as not being people. I, but then that the, the idea that the thing that prevents you from killing someone is is whether or not you see them as a person means that really on a fundamental level the Ashtian society and morality is not all that different from the Terran morality. Davison justifies all the awful things he does to the creatures as he views them because he doesn't view them as human. Him and Selver end up occupying the same mindset selver is is just in his actions but it's still the same thing i think at the end of the day like uh Le Guin is taking down colonial aggression but also the like concept of aggression in general is portrayed as being hugely negative in and of itself i think it's like a disease i think what makes me think that this story is a feminist story is the character of davison because he, in a lot of ways, like the character of Strickland from The Shape of Water, his yeah. macho self-evaluation is that nothing can defeat him. Mm-hmm. Not a person, not a world, not the environment. There is nothing that can he can he can take control and he can override anything that's going on. And that's how Davison is. 
he came to this planet with the idea was that this planet was not going to defeat him. And then he met Selver, who pushed back on him, the same way that the creature pushed back in the shape of water. It was almost the same thing. Yeah, I mean, I think these are both stories where, like, the, the, the real monster here, in a way, is, like, entitlement and toxic masculinity. And I think Le Guin draws a kind of direct connection between this colonialist patriarchal society and sort of internalized misogyny. Yeah, and I as think... sort of coming from the same root source and, like, feeding one another. And I think it's kind of like a simplified morality tale in which it's like Davison is the man and he's bad for people, he's bad for the environment, and Selver is a pacifist and he cares about the environment, so it's kind of their clash is very black and white. Mm-hmm. You know, like, he's destroying my planet, he hurt my wife, they... And then their reactions, while well, his reaction is like 10 times more aggressive than Selver's reaction, but it's the same thing. Like they're two sides of the same issue and they're fighting against each other. Yeah. Uh, and the ending is really sad. Selver talks about like how, you know, maybe after he's dead, people will forget about these ideas that he brought into the world or he brought into his society. But as long as he's alive, they're going to be there. And it's like this sort of time bomb between, like, how long is it going to be before an Ashtian does something bad enough for another Ashtian to not view them as a person and thus be able to kill them? Well, I think that's it. I mean, you're supposed to feel sorry for Raj Lubov, you know, because he's the anthropologist. He's the stand-in for the reader. He's supposed to see the fair and balanced. You know, he's the observer. He's supposed to not involve himself but when he does involve himself he doesn't really help in fact he makes things worse because Selver now feels that he has to protect him yeah so when they go to the town and they say okay destroy the town kill all the women you know burn this place to the ground don't hurt the anthropologist and then he runs out there and he starts meddling and trying to help people and he ends up being killed yeah, I mean, I think also Lubov is maybe kind of a stand-in for, like, the anti-war movement and the sort of ineffectual nature of that. Because he's still, he can oppose the war all he wants, but he's still entrenched in this colonial mechanism. And, like, unless he's going to tear down his whole world from the inside out, there's really nothing he can do except also be destroyed by it. I think that's a good observation, because what I read about this was that in when Le Guin was writing this, she was living in Europe. She was mm-hmm. living in I don't know if it was Scotland or England. And she, even though she was an anti war activist when she was living in the United States, when she was in Europe it wasn't as prevalent to to protest the war because I guess, you know, England didn't feel as invested in the war as the Americans did. And I bet she sort of felt that way herself, sort of felt distanced from, you know, the activity, the anti-war movement, and therefore her voice wasn't being heard as much as she wanted it to. Yeah, I mean, Lubav is, like, this continually frustrated character who, like, he cannot accomplish any of the things he wants to and isn't even entirely sure what the things he wants to accomplish are. I mean, he wants them to stop killing each other, but, like... And I think this is, like... The last part when Davison is fighting with his own men and he's yelling at them to like 
get these copters, fly over the forest, start dropping these fire bombs, he calls them. I think that is the part where it's kind of, it's so angry for Le Guin, who usually writes in this sort of intellectual, you know, very level, very sort of organized thought. It's it's almost like an action movie at that point, where it's like sort of plopped in the middle of this like, slow-paced sort of environmental science fiction and then all of a sudden you have like choppers and bombs and villages burning it's just it seems extremely violent for yeah this is maybe one of her most like like openly angry works i think davison is one of the least like gray characters i've ever really seen her write i think it works though because like i said he's pretty realistic like Honestly, the least believable thing about this story is that Davison is just a captain and not, like, the president. Yeah, and I think he sort of gets, he gets off a little bit easy. I mean, he's condemned to isolation on a trash island for all of his life and will probably, I mean, Selver says this thing, like, maybe you'll learn to dream or maybe you'll follow your journey to its logical end, which, like, is suicide, at least, I think, by implication. I think he gets it pretty bad. Like, I I, th- I think he would have much preferred to die fighting. He's very embarrassed at one point when he has to tell the uh, the colonial administrators and the representatives from the League of Worlds that he um, was spared because he assumed this submissive position. Yeah. Like, I think he, he Davidson would have rather Selver run him through with a spear. But he's also such a coward that he he defaults to he when he knows that that position will save him, he defaults to it and lays in that position for an entire night. Once he's surrounded by the Ashtians and Selver. Yeah, um, but to go back to the anthropologist, I don't feel sorry for him. And I feel I, sorry for him. He's in over his head. He but he works for a company where he knows what they're doing. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, I think there's a, I can see a thing where. He is originally sold on the lie. Like, they say, oh, this is a voluntary work program. And then he gets there, and they're slaves, and now he's isolated on this planet that he can't get off of because it takes, like, 25 years to get back home from it. I mean, he's... I feel sorry for him in the same way that I feel sorry for people like Chelsea Manning. Where it's like, well, you still signed up to be part of this brutal machine, but you tried to do something. Right. Well, I guess that's one way to look at it. So, but I think, like overall, I mean, it it definitely had a strong anti-war, anti-colonialism message. I think that was a stronger message than the like environmental cautionary tale. How do you how do you feel about the the novel the novella's sort of uh, blanket condemnation of aggression and violence? Even though that is the thing that saves the Ashtians from colonialist terror i think that that theme is clear in a lot of Le Guin's writing sure yeah so i i kind of took that as like that's her lifestyle that's her belief system and i feel like she's pushing that in this story it's it's a much more overtly preachy story like you know the the concepts that she's putting out she's putting them out in a i guess because it's a novella it has to be compressed, but I felt like she was a little bit preachy. I kind of felt like, and that even like 
it didn't really come off as like, you know, peaceful non-aggression is the way to go because in the end, the only way to deal with Davison is to be as violent as he is. Yeah, no, I don't think that that's what it's saying. I don't think the the novel is like, Silver is wrong. He should have done this non-violently. But I do think that it's like, even necessary violence is evil is sort of the point of view of this story. And I'm not sure what to make of that. There's also some things that... because it is situated in the Hanish cycle that make this a little bit weird because it's like the Ashleyans are not nat- actually native to this world. They were brought they're des- presumably the descendants of the Hanish colonizers, which also means that at some point aggression was aggression interspecies aggression and violence was a thing they were capable of. So it's not so much a thing that's being introduced as a thing that's being reintroduced and I don't know what that means. I think cultural aggression, even in pacifist cultures, exists. It's just not, you know, there's there's passive aggressive behavior. Sure. There's um, low level judgmental behavior. These are things that are human nature, regardless. And even if you're in a pacifist society, you're still going to have that sort of because that's that's more like interpersonal communication. Mm-hmm you know, to some level involves some type of aggression, you know, when people have, even when they have like open, you know, discussions where they're taking people's point of views, like Le Guin, she like sort of like an anthropologist, she looks at all the different points of view. That's why she has three different characters in their point of view. But even when they're having an open, frank discussion, like the anthropologist and Selver, there's still some type of slight aggression because they don't quite understand each other yeah that's a good point um were the last couple things i wanted to say one i think you're right that the novel is maybe a little preachy that doesn't bother me that's preachy is almost never a uh, a criticism that really bought like an element of a story that really bothers me but i think the most interesting points that the story makes are the ones that are the least explicit which is this sort of takedown of managerial liberalism with the way that the sort of League of Worlds and the Terran colonial administration is portrayed as being like sort of inherently ineffectual. Well, I think it's true because they don't they don't actually resolve the issue with Davison. They're just like, Oh, Davison, stop being a dickhead. Yeah. And then to the Ashians like, Oh, we told him to stop being a dick, but he just didn't do it. So our solution is you can keep him isolated on a trash island. We'll take everybody else out, and we'll come back when you're less angry. But then that's also the thing. At the end, Selver has this conversation with, uh, I think it's one of the representatives from the League of Worlds. Or or no, it's the colonel, maybe, where the colonel says, we're not going to come back for 50 generations. They're not going to bother you. And Selver's like, oh, you all decide everything at once. And, you know... If a leader in one village decided something, the leaders in the other village might not necessarily follow it. But he, and he's like, no, we all follow the, we all make the laws all at once, and we all follow them all at once. And he promised his like promise to Selver is based on this axiom, which we know is not true because that already happened. They laid down a law, and one dude, Davison, didn't follow it and nearly destroyed. You know, nearly did a genocide. And it's like, 
are they going to come back? Are they going to follow this law? Is somebody just going to decide that, hey, I want this planet and show up and do what Davison was trying to do, but more effectively? And I think it's, well, I think Davison was afraid of a lot more than just, you know, what he called the creatures. He, in this story, makes a comment about the fact that now that they have this device where they don't have to wait for a response from the League, that now, instead of making our own rules and doing things our own way, we're going to have to answer to somebody else ourselves. And, you know, instead of waiting 27 years to get a response, they're going to tell us right away. And that leads into the last point I wanted to make, which is, is this a takedown of Heinlein? Davison is a very libertarian character, and a lot of how he operates and the Terrans operate initially is very similar to stuff we see in, like, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, this kind of, like, strong-arm libertarian colonialism, and it is portrayed in this novel as being a horror show of violence and destruction. I think you're right, though, because looking just, you know, just from the Hugo Awards... He's already won three Hugo Awards, mm-hmm. and he is like at the peak of his like he is the top science fiction writer at that time. And Le Guin is coming up, and she's writing science fiction in a totally different style. Yeah, well, I mean, Heinlein is a is like I said, he's a libertarian, he's a capitalist. You know, arguably the most famous thing. The most, arguably the most famous sentence Le Guin has ever constructed is, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. Yeah, and I think, like, Heinlein, I mean, he, he's climbing to fame, and his, like, style of writing is this military science fiction where it's, like, taking over... I mean, Starship Troopers is 100% yeah. about, like, look how cool it is to dominate another species. It's and, not a novella, but at some point we should read and talk about Michael Moorcock's essay, Starship Stormtroopers. Which is a brutal takedown of that book. Yeah, and I think I think it is. I mean, I think it's also sort of an introduction. It's kind of like her saying, like, you know, there's a different style of science fiction that's also very relevant, and it's you know this the style that she's writing, and she's also saying as a feminist, like, it's time to take down that status quo, which is a very masculine, very military, very. Um, narrow, angry kind of focus in science fiction and saying like, okay, you know, we're not token women now. We're relevant writers who are standing right alongside. We're winning Hugo Awards too now. We're writing in the style. Our books are bestsellers. It's not a fringe genre anymore. You know, it's a mainstream drama uh, genre that's getting a lot of attention, literary attention. And it's time. Yeah, it's, she's kind of like saying to Heinlein, like, look, you know, we're here now. It's a, it's a new world. Yeah, I think, like, I had felt the Heinlein stuff with Davison's character earlier, but his response to the Ansible is really what crystallized it for me, because the second he is, he realizes he's going to have more oversight, he bristles against it, and he's like, we don't, we don't need the answer to these stuffed shirts. I'm going rogue, which is, like, a very Heinleinian protagonist thing to do, and it results in him burning villages and starting a two-man Vietnam war. Exactly. I guess that's uh, that's all I really have to say about this right now. Do you have anything else? Any well, other points I you just, make? I think, like I mentioned, this seems like a more angry, less philosophical. Maybe that's the style for Le Guin. I mean, there's some more... I think the dream stuff is where some more of her headier, 
philosophical ideas come into this the actual plot is like a much more straightforward like war and colonialism allegory but i think i mean it's it might be preachy it might be judgmental might be harsh criticism of the vietnam war but i think the thoughts that she put out are especially now and what's going on in society now it's still totally relevant we're still dealing with wars we're still dealing with environmental issues we're still even in this day and age we're still dealing with colonialism which is a surprising thing to say but it's true and we're still dealing with these corporate you know initiatives that destroy the environment destroy people's lives destroy cultures and you know it's sad but you know a story like this is still totally relevant it's like i said davison feels he feels like an alt-right guy because he is he's not religious he's a very atheistic character but he still has all of the hallmarks of like a classic right-wing conservative. Like he feels like a guy that would exist now and would run for Congress. Anytime you have a character portrayed as a man in a position of authority who tells other men to do something and initially the first thing is they do it or they're going to start to do it and then they realize that like, hey... He's putting me in danger. He's putting me in a helicopter where I'm going to die if I do what this man wants. Like, there's a level of, like, frenetic, like, passion that follows these types of men where the people who are following don't realize how dangerous these men are. Yeah. And it's very much relevant in today's society. The the two things I think make him feel really, like, a really realistic portrayal of this kind of awful dude is he dismisses... Everyone that disagrees with him as going spla, which means, like, insane, which feels a lot like, you know, you see all of these, like, right-wing dickheads on Twitter saying shit like, liberalism is a mental disorder, and shit like that, and that's, like, the same sentiment. And there's also the little anti-science streak that he has. One of the first things that happens in the story is, um, I think he's, like, the uh, camp geologist. Comes up to him and is like, hey, we need more trees. Oh, no. Yeah. The, the, like, he, he, I think he's just like an ecologist. Comes up to him and he's like, we need more trees and also tell your dudes to stop poaching the deer. And he's like, why do we need more trees? We're just growing grass. I don't understand. If a camp was run, if a farm was run really scientifically, why would you need the trees? Without understanding that that part of running it scientifically is having the trees there to prevent erosion. But that doesn't count as science because it's science he doesn't like. And the science he does like is the real science, which, like, boy, howdy, does that feel like a lot of people's response to climate change. Exactly. But that's what it is. I mean, it's kind of like he he can only be successful in a climate of misinformation. Yeah. And it, that's... That's why he's so afraid of the Ansible. Right. Exactly. But... I mean, I, th- I thought it was interesting. I've read some of her other works, especially in the context of the Hugo Award winners. So this was sort of an interesting variant of her work. Yeah. So. I definitely don't think this is... This is a lesser work, but sh- I think she's such a masterful writer that it's still better than a lot of stuff I've I read. And it's genuinely kind of one of my favorite uh, Vietnam War commentaries because there's no uh, Soviet stand-in. And it frames the war as what it actually was which is not a stand against communism but an act of colonialist aggression which is something that it feels like a lot of especially american writers were kind of afraid to deal with and i think that i mean 
I'm not, I mean, this sounds kind of weird, but like the Vietnam War was an American war. Yeah, it's the first American war. Yeah. In the way that American wars exist now. And I think it's kind of like, you know, like being in England and realizing that they're not obsessed with the anti-war movement Mm -hmm. like the Americans from where she came from, the intellectual concern about the anti-war movement was much bigger in the United States than in Europe. And I think this is her reaction to that. Yeah. I think that, I mean, people value Ursula K. Le Guin and they appreciate the craft of her writing, but I don't think analysis-wise, people are starting to do like literary criticism and, and analyzing her work and thinking thoughtfully about it. But I feel like once her whole entire body of work is evaluated and observed and sort of processed, the value and the importance of her as a writer, as an American writer, as a female writer, as a science fiction writer, as like a groundbreaking female science fiction writer, hasn't been realized yet. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, she's one of my all-time favorites. She's arguably my biggest influence in a way because I really respect her sort of un filtering using science fiction to express and explore her worldview in a really like unfiltered way i mean she's like a pretty committed leftist and a lot of her works have really intense you know anti-capitalist anti-colonialist you know anti-patriarchal themes that are not watered down in any way but that's like when i was reading um nk jemison when i Mm -hmm. read her series where she won triple hugo awards i felt like Oh, I think she is heavily influenced, and she might not even be aware of the fact that she's heavily influenced by Le Guin's style and the work that she has. I don't know if I've ever seen her explicitly mentioned in an interview, but I'm sure she would cop to that. I I think there's no way that she's not heavily influenced by Le Guin. And I uh, I said it before, and I say it again. I think she should. I think we need to reevaluate the kind. Don't like the concept of the big three, which is that like, oh, the three biggest science fiction writers of all time it's isaac asimov arthur c clark and heinlein but if we're gonna have a big three i would seriously suggest we dump heinlein out of that and slot in Le Guin. see i controversially would say in just jettison asimov i feel like asimov's better than not asimov is the worst one of the three like heinlein is a sack of shit with bad politics but he's the most skillful writer of the three i think clark has the most interesting ideas and the best handle on characters yeah i still have a lot of love for isaac asimov i know the last thing you read by him was bad but like he's he's good he's good okay (laughs) all right then we'll just leave that there then i'm okay with that we'll dump we'll dump highland and replace him with Le Guin, and we'll dump asimov and replace him with who do you want to replace him with i don't know that's a good question fritz lieber He's not influential enough. I think he doesn't have a body of work to to sort of stand that. (laughs) Philip K. Dick? Yeah, maybe Philip K. Dick. I would keep Heinlein in there, but I would give him the H.P. Lovecraft asterisk like he's an asshole. (laughs) He's like, that's one of the things that frustrates me. We're getting there, but he he absolutely should be framed in the same way that Lovecraft is framed, and he's not. He, He eludes cancellation in a way that is endlessly frustrating to me. Well, yeah, I think if he was uh, if he was writing today, he would have been 
outed on Twitter for some horrible thing that he had done, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, I just, like I said, I just think it's politics. Fuck, I don't know too much about him as, like, a real person, but I just know that the the points of view of his books are oftentimes horrifying to me. Well, yeah, have you read Starship Troopers? I think that's yeah. the worst one. Even stuff like, uh, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, as I think, deceptively nightmarish in its worldview. Put your, put your leftist in a tunnel and blow up the end of it? Like, yeah. that's... Okay. <laughs> There's a reason that that's like every libertarian's favorite of book. Of course, of course. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, so, we've mentioned them a bunch of times. I guess it's time to talk about the Hugo Award winners. When did you start reading, trying to read all the Hugo Award So, winners? just a little background. I had, I don't know if it was a reaction to Nate leaving for college, but at the time that Nate had left for college, I had decided that... I really wanted to sort of learn more about broad swaths of, like, literature. So I had the idea that I would read this book, this book list, which was the Modern Library's 100 Books of All Time. So kind of get, like, a sort of broad overview of, like, different types of books that were considered iconic. So I had read that, and then after that I decided to read all the Pulitzer Prize winners. Interesting is that... But this podcast doesn't exist without that book list reading endeavor because the precursor of this podcast is was our monthly conversations about books, which started when you were reading that list because I would come back home every couple of weeks and we would like talk about the list and like where you were and what you had just read, which then sort of led to us doing kind of a two-person book club, which then directly led to this podcast. Right. Right, yeah, because we used to call it the Froyo Book Club. We'd have Froyo and we'd talk about books. Yeah. So after I read the Pulitzers, I read the National Book Awards, and then I read the Edgar Awards. So after reading specifically in the mystery genres, I started the Hugo Awards because I hadn't read a lot of science fiction, and I felt like you know a lot of like modern literature was sort of stemming from early science fiction, so I thought it would be a good... Yeah, we're living in a world where, you know, George Saunders is one of the most celebrated writers of the age. And I think, inarguably, a lot of stuff he's written is science fiction. Right. So I started the list at the end of 2016, and I finished it in February 2019. So it wasn't my exclusive reading. I did read other things. I just sort of had one Hugo Award going at the whole time. So it was kind of interesting because I was aware, like not with the other lists, that especially in the science fiction world, that there were like genres, subgenres within the science fiction world that were sort of time-based. Yeah, science fiction is weird as a genre. Mystery is like a genre with a structure. Like there are similarities between every mystery novel and even the ones that don't have those similarities are making a conscious decision to subvert the conventions of the genre. Science fiction doesn't really have that. There's no definitive science fiction structure. There's not really a formula to a science fiction story. You can do other genres in science fiction. You can write a sci-fi mystery. You can write a sci-fi western. Well, that's what I sort of found out. Like, you know, when I was, I started 
the list started in 1953. Alfred Bester won the first Hugo Award. It's the Demolished Man. The Demolished Man. And then, you know, I didn't read the retroactive Hugos where they went back prior to 1953 and started assigning awards. I didn't do that. I just read the the winners for each year. Mm -hmm. And then, so I sort of found out like, you know, in the 1950s and 1960s, that's almost like the golden age of like science fiction. That's like classic space travel and like, you know, military and technology based science fiction. A lot of it, I really was surprised that there was a lot of the earlier stuff that was just kind of really dated and did not, you know, for some for something that's supposed to be like set in the future or very modern or avant-garde, it was really dated and kind of like stagnant. Well, that's the, the classic thing saying is, I don't remember who this quote is from, but it's that science fiction is actually about the, is not about tomorrow, it's about the anxieties of today. Exactly. And you can see that a lot in the 1950s and 60s. So, like, for example, one of my favorites from that time period was The Big Time, which I hadn't read before, Fritz Lieber, which I really enjoyed, and I was yeah, we, surprised. we just joked about him. I think he's, he's seriously underrated. He's one of, another one of my favorite writers. I think the thing with Fritz Lieber is he wrote a bunch of science fiction. I think he's thought of primarily as a fantasy writer. Yeah, and I think a lot of 50s and 60s science fiction is almost like pulp fiction, you know, yeah. it's like we're fighting Martians or we're shooting in the outer space or, you know, it's not really that level of like sophistication that you see later on. And it's sort of like standalone short novels, a very masculine or very like actiony. If In a way, the science history of science fiction kind of parallels the history of comic books. Exactly. But I think like the what happened to science fiction in the 70s doesn't happen in comics until the 80s. Yeah, I, in the 70s, it's... That's my favorite era of science Yeah, that's like the Adam Anyone that listens to this show... Well, those guys were a little bit earlier, but they're still writing in the 70s. Anybody that listens to this show knows that my jam is 70s science fiction. I think because it's weirder. Yeah. It gets weird. It gets very surrealist. It starts mixing with fantasy. It gets kind of like... A lot of it turns... Escapist. Yeah, a lot of it turns inward. It becomes about exploring... The self and the person who exists in the science fiction world more than it is about just exploring the world, which is the thing that's really appealing to me. So I kind of, I picked my favorites from each genre, each year, each decade. Each decade, yeah. yeah. Okay, I'm excited. What, what, what are these? So it starts in the 50s, right? Oh, also, they're, and anybody's wondering, they're called the Hugo Awards because they're named for Hugo Gernsback. Who was the one of the like, you know, most important and influential early like publishers uh, for science fiction? He created Amazing Stories, right? Yeah. Which is like, it might not be the first science fiction magazine, but it is. It is like essentially the first. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting too because a lot of the early fifties and sixties um, novels were hard to find. In fact, one of them, the only way that I could find it was to read the sort of serialization of it from Amazing Stories. Yeah, we had to hunt down the the scans of the actual magazine. Yeah, which was kind of difficult to find because they're they're not archived. And a lot of them are out of print because they, you know, the writers aren't as notable as the later. So shout out to anyone that is trying to archive all of these old uh, sci-fi and pulp and literary magazines because there there is some effort. It's not terribly unified, but 
uh, mad love to anybody that's doing that stuff. Yeah, and I think it's important because it's almost like the history of this genre. Yeah. So. Okay, so what's your favorite from the 50s? So from the, I picked the 50s and the 60s combined, and okay. I picked the big time, Fritz Lieber. Which I thought was kind of, it was kind of like a classic 1950s B-movie, which I thought was interesting. Uh, that's the one, which one's the, the big time is the one where people get, are getting drafted into like a time war. Yes, the time war. And they're war. being plucked out of different time periods. Yeah, I think that would make a really fantastic um, movie. Uh, yeah, I think so. I I wonder how much, if if any, how much if any influence... That story had on uh, Doctor Who. Oh, definitely. It seemed like it could have, in fact, been a. There's is that the one? There was some story that you and I read together that was on this list. I think it was that where I was like, "This is a Doctor Who story that ends before the Doctor shows up." Yes, exactly. I think it might have been that one. Yeah, I really like that. That sort of it's very like a space romp, and it kind of reminded me of sort of like that like bombastic like space travel almost like hitchhiker's guide so i really like that and then in the 70s i will say this though i respect that pick it's great you do know that in uh 1961 a canticle for Leibowitz one well i picked my favorites from each decade but then i also compiled a general list of things that i found surprising that i found really interesting and the canticle for Leibowitz is on it I can't really what says great. I think it's too long or we would read it for this podcast. Part of me is like wondering what if we did a series, like a three-part series on it where each episode we talk cuz it's three books in one. So we could do an episode on each book. Yeah. I don't know. We might do that in the future. But uh, mm-hmm. if you haven't read A Canto for Leibowitz, check it out. But also be aware that Nate has a fondness for what he calls space Jesuits. So <laughs> Also in the 60s is a case of conscience. Yes, Which is exactly. uh, another space Jesuit story. Well, they're not space Jesuits in the Cantor for Leewoods. They're post-apocalyptic Jesuits. <laughs> There's a difference. I like the intersection of science fiction and religion. I think that's a really interesting overlap and like conflux of ideas and concepts that is, uh, even though there is a lot about it, I think is vastly underexplored. And I think a lot of it is... That does exist is a little dismissive. It's written from like a very sort of, um, I don't know what the, you know, like a very sort of chauvinistic atheist yeah. perspective. Well, I think if you're right, if you say that in the 60s and 70s, science fiction turns more inward and it's talking yeah. about yourself and your, you know, your role in society, then it would make sense that religion and science, which is a very intense part of like philosophical debate would become relevant in science fiction yeah so even though in the 70s you start to see a lot of weird you know the weirder sort of surreal parts of like science fiction like Roger Zellini I picked for my favorite Joe Haldeman Haldeman The Forever War that book's great another Vietnam War one this is one is less about the uh, the war as it is about one soldier, like again, one guy, how he's affected by living in this world, how he's affected by the war, how he perceives the world around him. Yeah, and I think it's very thoughtfully written. 
which I think, and it's kind of also, I think it's a really great book if you think about, you know, his experience in the Vietnam War himself, and then this sort of um, perception that science fiction is a manly, you know, genre and men can read science fiction. For him to write a science fiction novel that deals with the Vietnam War is a way to reach out to people and soldiers who were experiencing that war and maybe finding something that they could relate to. Yeah. And I think that's sort of like, it's, I don't know. It's just, I, I think that itself is very avant-garde. Yeah. No, that's a really good pick. Again, if I was going to pick from the 70s, it would probably be The Dispossessed. Yeah. I think that uh, that's also Ursula K. Le Guin's big time. I mean, she she's the first female Hugo Award winner in the 1970s. And I feel like she sort of starts to dominate in the 70s. Yeah, well, I think this is 71 is when she wins for The Left Hand of Darkness. I think it's 1970. Yeah, so the first Hugo Award winner of the 70s is Ursula Le Guin. And it's this <laughs> book that's like an exploration of the Cold War and gender roles. And yeah, Left Hand of Darkness is really good. So then getting into the 80s, um, it starts to become more technology driven and it starts to be about our interaction with technology. Yeah, I mean, that's cyberpunk starts to, to yeah. rise in the 80s. I mean, I think that makes sense if you track like the, the what's going on at the time. The People get really excited about technology in the 80s because I, I saw a thing. Uh, what was I... It was. A, I was watching a video about. She blinded me with science. Mm-hmm. Weirdly enough, and the point of that the the reviewer, well, not reviewer, the guy who was narrating the video, uh, brings up is that like people got really excited about technology in the eighties because it was the first time in a while where on a huge, massive level, technology was directly affecting the everyday lives of. New technology was directly affecting the everyday lives of, you know, like working class people because for all the past couple decades, everybody had been sort of set in. You have a landline phone, you have a TV, it's, you know, now it's in color and now it's like you have a computer, you have a VHS player, you're getting video games and stuff. And like all of this new technology is pouring into the household and getting everybody fired up. And it makes sense that that would be reflected in the science fiction. Yeah, and I think it's sort of like, I mean... It continues with this sort of disenfranchised feeling, this sort of, it's the rise of the evil corporation. It's sort of the isolation of like being like, you know, ugh, I'm going to say it, jacked in, you know, like like that sort of like, um, it's the rise of the isolation that comes from a computer-based society. It's also the beginning of the time, which I really start to like is these evil robots or the android that's like acting like a human being i mean you have like phil k dick coming sort of seeding that like you know he's almost like an early outlier to that sort of cyberpunk oh yeah i definitely think that philip k dick is kind of the he's kind of the grandfather of cyberpunk i mean you neuromancer i think is the first cyberpunk novel but there's an argument to be made that to Android's Dream of Electric Sheep is cyberpunk. Yeah, and I feel that's what I picked as my favorite because... Neuromancer? Yeah, it's quintessentially 80s sci-fi, but it's also, for me, 
um, reading it in the 80s when it was a new novel and like seeing like the, you know, the early sort of integration of computers and I mean we may not have had computers in our homes but we started to have them in school they cost six thousand dollars and you were only allowed to use them for half an hour or a week because they were very expensive but we started to see like computers being used in like retail settings or in schools or you know you know especially like in schools I think yeah, yeah. So. Um, also, Neuromancer is the novel that directly inspired the album that ruined Billy Idol's career. Is that right? Yeah, he put out an album called Cyberpunk. I feel like a weird... It's him att- his I attempt mean, to be Nine Inch Nails. William Gibson sort of weirds me out because in my mind he's like this iconic writer, but then you follow him on Twitter and he's taking pictures of cats or, you know... He's just like a... And he's still excited. I mean, just this morning I saw a tweet where he was excited about some technology he saw in a hotel and he took a picture of it. And I was kind of like, that is exactly... Well, I think that's that's makes sense because his obsession with technology is always about, like, what's accessible, what's in the real world. He is one of the first... I think one of the first science fiction writers who the technology he's commenting on is not what's on the bleeding edge. It's like... What happens when this bleeding edge stuff becomes, you know, gets into the streets? And, like, how? what does it mean when you, like, the cyberdeck is not just a, a big pie-in-the-sky idea that these scientists are working on. And they're dealing with the implications. His story is about, like, what happens when a guy who's, like, a criminal has it? But I think, like, or, like, a dude who's, like, on the fringes of society. But when people, like, think about, like, oh, I wish I could go to that bar in Star Wars. I want to hang out. When I think about that, I was like, I want to go to that bar in Noromancer. You know, <laughs> I want to see that. You know, I want to, I, that's, that's what I want to see. Like, that's, but I think it's interesting because in all of these movies, you know, things like The Matrix and they're sort of based on this sort of cyberpunk aesthetic. All of it seems to be based on the way that William Gibson described technology in Neuromancer. Yeah, yeah. Like, they're in The Matrix, but they have like, 80s dot matrix printers that they're hacking into you know what i mean so i kind of like they never really get out of that like technology can be like taken over it can be hacked it can be used for something else it can be repurposed stolen or whatever well yeah even though it's not directly about the technology or sci-fi or whatever i think like on a aesthetic level one of the most influential lines in any sci-fi novel is the sky was the color of television tuned to a dead channel yeah because that's like that is sort of the the uh, the motto of the aesthetic of like every sort of cyber, grungy cyberpunk story to come afterwards. It could also be like you know the title for the history of the Gen X experience. I mean, it's yeah. kind of like you know when people are like, "Oh, Gen X!" Like that article that just came out, and people, I was just like, "Ugh, this is you know." But it's just like everything is gloomy, but it's gloomy in a way that reminds you of broken obsolete technology exactly it's not just the sky is gray the sky looks like cyber trash (laughs) because we're all cyber trash and that's it we deserve it can i make a prediction for your 90s fave sure is it hyperion it is it is hyperion so in the 90s it's like the 70s again yeah it's like the 70s (laughs) but with better technology yeah it becomes like well, the 90s becomes like the rise of high fantasy or like the acceptance of high fantasy into the science fiction genre. Mm-hmm. And I think like George R. R. Martin has a lot to do with that. That's when he starts becoming involved in the Hugos and that's when he starts writing his 
high fantasy period that sort of results with the Game of Thrones. In fact, he wins a Hugo Award for one, the first um, book in the Song of Ice and Fire series. Yeah, that one's the Game of Thrones, right? So I feel like it's also like sort of the rise of the epic um, series. You start to see a lot of big series. You see like Bujold and Kim Stanley Robinson and George R. R. Martin, Neil Gaiman... The uh, Harry Potter series, one of the books. I don't think he, he, he didn't win a Hugo Award for Game of Thrones. George R. R. Martin? Yeah. Yeah, he did. I don't even think that one got nominated. He won, well, he won for one of the series. Let's see, he's in the 90s. So we have Dan Simmons, which is my choice. Hyperion wins in 1990. That book rules. We talked Bouchard about it on this wins for the Vore Games. That's when the Vore Games steered. That's another sort of... Star Trek, high fantasy combo, epic series that comes out. The Vercosian Saga? Yes. And then Werner Vinge for his fire upon the deep. That book's really interesting because I think that's where cyberpunk uh, concepts and like ethos start to seep into other aspects of science fiction. Because it's essentially a space opera with cyberpunk. It's a space opera in a cyberpunk setting in a way. I think you're right. He was nominated. He's kind of the Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah, he was the... nominated in 2001, but J.K. Rowling won. So, so yes, he did not win. I don't think he's... He, I don't think... He, for, at least for novels, I don't think he's ever won one. I mean, he was nominated all the way back in the 70s. But I think, like, like the 90s is really... It's, it's the rise of the giant series. And I feel like a lot of those big series start to become prevalent. And I think that's a lot, like, that becomes a thing in science fiction and fantasy in general because I think publishers realize that those kinds of series started to sell well, so they started to push those. I think we also start to see, oh, no, that wouldn't be the 90s. We're a little bit in the 90s, right, is when we kind of start to see the the, the walls between the lit scene and the sci-fi scene kind of get a little permeable because... Uh, does Connie Wilson win in the 90s or is that yeah. not until the 2000s? And like that stuff is sort of on the verge. And then I think that gets really solidified in the 2000s when Michael Shabon wins for Yiddish Policeman. Yeah. Know? Yeah. So there really is a crossover between things that are originally or early on would not have been identified as science fiction. I think that sort of when fantasy makes a break in in the late 80s and early 90s that it sort of opens the door for more mainstream because i mean like the harry potter books are technically not science fiction well it's supposed to be for for i don't know if from the beginning but at least for a while it's supposed to be a sci-fi and fantasy and sff award and you see a lot of fantasy stuff get nominated over the years but by and large science fiction wins almost every time and i do think as time goes on we start to see more winners for the fantasy in the fantasy genre which again is another weird not quite a genre genre. Well, that's like one of the big series and one of the big winners is David Brin in the 90s with his... Uplift. Uplift series, which is kind of... It, it's kind of like fantasy and science well, fiction melded together. Yeah. It's, I mean, I think those the Uplift saga is structured a lot like a high fantasy epic. Yeah. Those books are cool. And that's the same thing I feel about like Hyperion that is sort of a melding of like literature because it has the sort of 
um, nods to classic literature and it also has the high fantasy but it also has the space epic and it kind of feels very at this time the worlds start to be really huge you know like the you know the vor saga you know this huge you know epic series that's 20 30 books you can start to get like terry pratchett and his massive series so these epic series that continue like large like even harry potter books i mean they're what like nine eight nine books so they're kind of like the standalone singular science fiction paperback is is given way to these epic series that have very loyal very stringent fans which uh which harry potter book won I think it was the Goblet of Fire. Yeah, I guess that's fine. That's kind of the last good one, right? Yeah. Uh, it still has that awful uh, spew subplot about the know, house elves. I think that might have just been a sort of a Hugo Award to say, like, okay, we acknowledge your series because she's nominated in other years and doesn't win. I was going to say, do you think it's an apology for not giving her it for Prisoner of Azkaban, which is clearly the best one? But Prisoner yeah. of Azkaban was up against a deepness a deepness in the sky and Cryptonomicon, and also a civil campaign, which are all better books. Well, yeah, you start to see, like, I mean, Greg Bear makes an appearance, he starts to Darwin's show. radio is weird. Have you, yeah, but I mean, like Neil Stevenson like, is, you know, he had already won one for the Diamond Age, and he was up for Cryptonomicon. So you start to see... Like, um, these big, heavy-hitting authors coming into the list. Darwin's Radio has a bunch of stuff about, like, junk DNA in it being, like, reawoken. It's got a—the science in that is iffy, and it results in a very weird story. That's, like, one of the books that I find to be, like, the weirdest winner was that um, Robert J. Sawyer. I think he wrote that Hominids one about that alternate world where Neanderthals— which he makes very clear in the beginning that you have to pronounce it with the talls at the begin at the end of it. Like that's kind of like a weird. Yeah. It's like when I read the Edgar Award and one of the books that one was a book called Peregrine about a serial killer that used a hawk to kill people, and it was like, uh, how did this like were they just like this? This book is just so like. Goofy. If that book had been one sentence <laughs> and the sentence was a serial killer uses a hawk, uh, then it still would have been worthy of the award. <laughs> So, and then, like, right now, in the 2000s, you know, you're back to the high fantasy blockbusters. And you Neil start... Gaiman wins for the first time, right? Yeah, I think this, this is when you see the non, like, they're like the Kurt Vonnegut's. They're like, they're writing science fiction inspired works, but they're not identifying as science fiction writers. Yeah. Because you see, like, Michael Chabon, which you mentioned, Gaiman, Connie Wilson, they all sort Shana of... Shana Mielville. Yeah. So they're all sort of, then it's almost like there's no barrier between um, what is literature and what is a blockbuster and what is high fantasy and what is a science fiction novel. It's sort of, at that point, it's pretty much melded together into anything goes for sci-fi. It's like, also it's like the rise of dystopic fiction. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when N.K. Jemison wins for every single one in her series, you know, three years in a row, it's kind of like cemented that dystopic fiction is a part and part of the science fiction genre. I also like in the 2000s that it's like the return of like 
the space robot, you know, with Anne Leckie, and I like that. And then that leads to Martha Wells and her novellas, which are winning all kinds of awards. Yeah, she's kind of the N.K. Jemison of the novella category at this point, right? Yeah. Um, so, Scalzi wins his first award in the 2000s for Red Shirts, which is a good book, but a weird choice. It's weird that he that's the one he won for and not like Old Man's War or Collapsing Empire. Yeah, it was kind. Of, that kind of is like a, a, a weird. Because that's like a meta fiction story about like bad it, TV writing. It kind of though cements his like what he's really good at, which is like writing these sort of novels that have an element of like you know not being like serious, like science fiction that like pokes fun at itself. You know, being yeah, he's not quite a, or he's not quite a Terry Pratchett. But he's like, he's close. He might be like an accessible version of Terry Pratchett. Like he's easier to understand. His books are easier to digest. Because if you... It's a shame if, that Terry Pratchett never won a Hugo. If you're like, okay, I'm going to read Terry Pratchett, then you have pretty much committed yourself to like a lifelong endeavor of reading these books. I think <laughs> that that's unfair. And I think that that thought process keeps a lot of people from enjoying what are some really great books. No, I think that, I mean, I'm not going to say they're not great books, but I feel like he he is a writer where his fans are so loyal to him that, you know what I mean? They're like... No, like, I don't know what you mean. They're like George R. R. Martin fans. Like, you're like, I, you, you commit and identify as a Terry Pratchett fan. And when you meet another Terry Pratchett fan, you're like, mm, like, you know, you have a, you know, a guaranteed friend that you can talk to for hours. Uh, yeah. I feel like... Scalzi also reminds me a little bit. I mean, he's not as, like, tongue-in-cheek as, like, Douglas Adams, but I feel like he oh, has yeah. a casual sort of, you know, relaxed style of writing where it's not like, okay, I have to learn about a very intense world, you know, and I have to learn all about the rules and the money and who's in charge and what family is le- leading this part of it. I mean, you're not, like, committed to, like, learning about Westeros when you pick up one of his novels. I think the thing with him is he's funny. His characters are oftentimes like funny people who make jokes. The setting is always serious. It's not in an absurd setting in the way that a Terry Pratchett or a Douglas Adams would make their setting. You know who I was surprised had never won a Hugo Award is Jim Butcher. Yeah, he's a. That's. I think because he's a guy who writes so many series, it's like which book would you give it to? Yeah. If I they were, if so. they gave like you, I could see giving him an award for the Dresden Files as a whole. But is there one you would single out as being like the one that would be deserving of the award by itself? Yeah, I don't know. I think that might be the same thing with Terry Pratchett, where it's just like, well, well Discworld's great, but like which Discworld? Well, he was, was nominated in 2016, but there was no way he was going to win against the fifth season. So what was he up? What was he nominated for? He wrote a. Steampunk inspired oh. standalone novel. Also, oh, been hella weird if a steampunk story won in 2016. Yeah, well, it was like I'm not one of those like hard in the against steampunk guys. I like a lot of steampunk stuff, but like it was Jim Butcher and Neil Stevenson were both nominated, and they lost to N.K. Jamison, which is they. That's they fine. Should've. Neil Stevenson doesn't need to win another one. He's won two, right? Yeah. For novels, at least. I don't know if he's won any other ones. I'm sure he has. So he, so he's good. Wait, so what's your favorite from the 2000s? I would say the N.K. Jemisin series. 
There's oh, well, three. Okay, yeah. Those are those are good. I don't know what my favorite from it. I mean, it might be red shirts. I don't know. It might be the Yiddish Policeman's Union. I really yeah, like that. I like that a lot. I had a, that was one of the some of the books when I started this. I had already read, and they were mostly things from the early two thousands. What is a? Do you have a prediction for next uh, the next one? Because the nominees are Becky Chambers for Race Record of a Spaceborn Few, Mary Robin and Cole for The Calculating Stars. Yoon Ha Lee uh, for Revenant Gun, one of our faves. Not that book particularly, but we've talked about Yoon Ha Lee's writing before. Naomi Novik for Spinning Silver, Rebecca Roanhorse for Trail of Lightning, and Catherine M. Valenti for Space Opera. Now you know which one I'm pulling for, which is Space Opera. I had only read Novik's Spinning Silver. She was nominated for her earlier work, Uprooted, and she didn't win. Um, Spinning Silver is the, the Rumpelstiltskin one, right? Yes. We've talked about that on this podcast yes. before. I really liked Space Opera. I liked it a lot, and I and I would like her to win. I would like her to win, and I would like Space Opera to win. It's another I'm I'm always like, rooting for the funny one. like. And I would like, like HBO to turn that into a prestige television series. I want... Like, I don't want to see a sci-fi or basic cable version of it. I want to see a high-end, high-budget version of this book. It, it makes sense for it to be a TV show, because it's like the Eurovision thing. But what I want is uh, Taika Waititi to direct a movie based on it. I mean, the guy who made Thor Ragnarok and What We Do in the Shadows kind of be perfect for yeah, this. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think uh, Yoon Holly is going to win. I think he is overdue for a win, and people really like... Does this Revenant Gun have anything to do with the Mercy Needle? I think so. Is it the same gun series? Because I would, I would be interested to read a whole novel that's inspired by the world that's created in that short story. Yeah, um... I mean, it's part of the uh, the same series with Nine Fox, Gambit, and Raven strategy. Okay. It's a, the, sort of the last part of that trilogy. Yeah, I I had planned to read this because I I, I try to read pre-read them before mm-hmm. they come out, so I so I'm already ahead of the game. But I, my prediction would be space opera. I like that. I think she's risen enough in her um, popularity as a quality sci-fi writer that she could definitely... This would be her first win, right? In yes, novels, right? definitely. I, uh, I think she has won or has been nominated for novellas or short stories. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like I said, she's a writer I really like. We've talked about her. We talked about Wolves of Brooklyn on this podcast before and like I've been reading her stuff for a really long time. Uh, yeah, no, I, I won Space Albert to win. I just don't think it is. But... Yeah, I think Uproot is more up. No, spinning, spinning Silver is probably more mainstream. That definitely has the sort of Neil Gaiman fantasy, Game of Thrones fan audience. Um, I can see that. Like I said, my prediction is Revenant Gun's going to win. So, so just sort of to briefly go through the um, most hated, most liked. Yes. So. I mean, I, I almost hate to say it because I talk about how much I hate this book. Oh, is it Psy Team? Psy Team. Is that the worst yes. one? Um, I also did not, maybe because it was so dated, but they Rather Be Right, that sort of one about Bossy, the computer. That kind of was like... That one's, yeah. 
That that did not stand up from ni- from the 1950s. That didn't even stand up. That's kind of the one when people do this sort of project, like you're talking about. Like I think um, Tor did like a reread. Ser- it was either Tor or Io9 did like a reread series where they went through all the Hugo Awards, and that's one of the ones where people are consistently like, "Why did this win? What happened that year?" I think that maybe there was one... only four sci-fi novels published, and they they picked the best. What did it beat out? Um, I don't. They didn't really have a lot in that time period. Let's see. Oh, I'd rather it, be right. Was it was? It's just one. There's that no was list just of one. nominees. Yeah, and I kind of like one of the things I was most disappointed that I really wanted to be better than it was was Snow Queen by Joan Vinge. I really thought that that was going to be better, but it kind of was very muddled and it was like a kind of a passive aggressive romance. And it's like after reading Tanith Lee, I was like, you know, you could have done a high fantasy sci-fi better. So, yeah. So, and then, I mean, they weren't awful. Tanith Lee should have won a Hugo. She never won a Hugo. Yeah. Or at least for a novel, she never won one. Um, and she rules. But the the one that I the series that I sort of put off to the very end and and it sort of ended being the last Hugo Awards I read were the Mars trilogy, King yeah, Stanley we Robinson. References so earlier. long, so slow. Uh, those are they're. I like them. I like King Stanley Robinson. Those mm-hmm. uh, I think that's like the least surprising thing I've ever said. Uh, <laughs> those are science fiction. Stories for people that care about trains. Not people that, like, build model trains, but people who, like, get mad that the train system is not as good as it should be. Yeah. I could see, like, you, you if you had, like, a two-hour commute every day, you would read this giant novel. We've talked before about Big Brother sci-fi, the stuff that... The, the unapproachable books on your Big Brother's uh, shelf in the basement... Uh, and that's definitely some Big Brother but sci-fi. But I think that's a kind of, like, if you hadn't read a sci-fi novel and you're like, let me get into sci-fi and you pick this, then you would definitely be like, because, you know, there is that sort of sci-fi, like the three-body problem where it's so technical. Yeah. And it's kind of, and I think this is it. This oh, is yeah, it. I would never in a million years you have hand to be... somebody read Mars as their first sci-fi novel. Yeah, you have... I don't know what I would. Like, you have to be, like, an environmental scientist to care about, I mean, terraform. There's a lot of information about terraforming and not enough information about, like, leftists fighting each other, (laughs) for my taste. Uh, Yeah, that book is, like, all about terraforming wires and it's honestly one of the strongest arguments against it that you could have. (laughs) Well, if you were, like, doing it, you could read that while you were waiting for your bacteria to blossom. It, it would take you years to get through it. I had to set myself on a reading schedule to read a certain amount of pages per day mm-hmm. before I could read, you know, like, you know, the escapist detective fiction that I rewarded myself with reading after getting through these. I don't feel like, like when I read Ulysses, like I felt smarter for reading it. I, I actually felt like dumber. Like I didn't even understand a lot of... Hey. So speaking of Ulysses, this is a tangent, but you saw all that stuff about how Mayor Pete Buttigieg, or however you're supposed to say his name, his favorite book is Ulysses. Did you see the quote recently where he said somebody asked him about it and he said, I want to do to politics what Ulysses did to literature? What does that mean? I don't know. And it sounds like a threat, right? <laughs> 
Well, you know how I feel about Ulysses. All the people who have claimed to... There are more people who have claimed to read Ulysses than there are copies of Ulysses sitting on your parents' bookshelf. I tend to believe people who said they read Ulysses. I tend to distrust people who think they got Ulysses. Um, But even then, we've talked about this. Ulysses is... There's a lot. it's, It's like intentionally obscure in a lot of places, but like... It's a pretty breezy read compared to Finnegan's Wake. I think it has this perception of being like something that you have to be... It's like modern art. Yeah. You know, you're like, mm, I don't get this. Maybe I'm not as smart or I don't understand Ulysses. Yeah. I think... Ugh. Grown. Yeah. So is there... Was it worth it? <laughs> I think so. And this is like sort of my overall favorites were things that I probably would not have selected. Yeah. You know, like, we talked about A Canical for Leibowitz. I really like that. Um, I like The Wanderer, another Fritz Lieber. I thought that was a lot of fun to read. I really enjoyed that. Um, I really love Lord of Light. I thought that was one of my favorite, my all-time favorites of reading off the list. I probably would not. Ha- Just the cover alone wouldn't think, like, oh, this is kind of weird. I don't want to get into it's it. It's funny because those are, like, kind of all, except for The Wanderer, which I do like. But, like, Lord of Light and Canticle for Leibowitz are definitely books that have occupied the... Nate won't shut up about this yeah. position at one point or another, especially Canticle for Leibowitz. God, I was so annoying for like a month while, like while and after I was reading that. Not that it took me a month to read it, but I mean, you know. I loved the Dispossessed. I thought that was one of my favorites. Turned out to be one of my favorites on the list, and also one of my favorite Le Guin novels. Mm-hmm. Another book I, um, I have not shut up about at some point. I love Dream Snake. That was one of my favorites. That was such a great book to read. I, I had so much fun reading that. I couldn't stop reading it. I loved Bond and McIntyre. I read it right around the time right right before she passed away. Yeah. So I kind of felt like I had read it at the perfect time. I think that that's like a feminist novel. I mean, I love everything about it. The snakes, the world she creates. Also kind of like... The women in there and the sort of, I, you know, I just wish there were like... 50 more books in that series. I like that a lot. That's, yeah. I like the David Brin, the, um... Uplift. Uplift. And it was interesting, too, because I had been reading the series for a while, the Hugo Awards for a while, but when I started talking about that I was reading these books, lots of people loved those books. And lots of people who didn't necessarily like science fiction wanted to talk about those books. Which I thought was interesting. So he sort of has this sort of universal appeal. Another series that would make a great television series. Yeah, the problem with that though is a lot of the main characters are whales. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but there's a lot of great stuff in there. There's a lot of great stuff in those books. And I like N.K. Jemison. I don't think I would have read those books if she didn't win the Hugo Award. I read the first two and then I definitely realized that I would be committed to reading the rest of the series, even if she didn't win. But it also sort of opened my mind to this sort of environmental science fiction. Mm-hmm. So I start, you know, now I'm looking for more books like that, which I think is interesting. Mm-hmm. Dune didn't do that for you? No. No. <laughs> Dune was definitely one and done. And in fact, Dune was the only one that didn't reread. Oh, yeah, you had read Dune. Because before. I was like, I read that in high school. Check. I am not going back to that. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna evangelize for Dune again. I've done enough of that in my short time on this earth. But uh, Dune's good. People are unfair to it when they 
call it boring, but whatever. I get it. I mean, and then it's also like a little bit of an icky white. We don't need to relitigate Dune. <laughs> we'll we'll do enough of that when the movie comes out. Exactly. Exactly. I did hear somebody on a podcast say that uh, they were casting all of these people in the Dune movie to distract everyone from how boring that story is. Which, like, I mean, you're not wrong, but you don't need to say it. Well, I think it's kind of, I mean, we're used to, we've been conditioned to like prestige television based on the sort of aesthetic of what the look is. I mean, Mm -hmm. especially with Game of Thrones. So, you know, seeing these flashy costumes and this elaborate world, you know, I don't know if they're going to like sex up Dune. I mean, it's kind of. Yeah, it's not really sexy. But maybe if I mean, you put they, Carl Drogo in a, like, you know, genie pants, I don't know if it's going to help or hurt the series at this point. I mean, can it get any sexier than when they put Patrick Stewart in the 80s one? <laughs> Look, that had every had Kyle MacLachlan, Patrick Stewart, music by Toto. I mean, it, yeah. You, you know what it all checks out. You know, I found out, that, like, yesterday... Uh, you know the um, Gummy Bears cartoon that has that great theme song? One of the dudes from Toto wrote and performed that theme song. That does not surprise me. Does not surprise me. There's a non-zero chance that the guy who wrote and sung the uh, Gummy Bears theme song will be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Do you think he'll, that someone will do a cover, do a ukulele cover of that when they I'm reboot sure. the series? They've, already, they've referenced them in the background mythology of the DuckTales reboot several times already. So, you mm, know, there you I don't go. Know. Anyway, that's way off topic. The Gummy Bears never won a Hugo Award. <laughs> Is there any particular writer that stands out as like a real find from reading this list or somebody that you grew to appreciate in a different way through I think just their inclusion? Of some of the women writers I probably would not have been aware of. I mm-hmm. think that the Hugo Award is... It's interesting because it's early on an acceptance of women writers, which I think isn't, it's sad because, you know, what happens with the Hugo Awards and the controversy with it. But in the beginning... Oh, the, God. We don't need to talk about that no. stuff. But there, the awards have always seemed to be sort of inclusive of women and, you know, different types of books. And I think that that... Yeah, just, that makes that, like, sad puppies, like, post-gamer gate fucking Vox Day bullshit reactionary movement. It, it, it is in all places that that stuff shows up because it's, it's happened with comics, it's happened with video games, it's always ahistorical. But, like, when it is juxtaposed against the history of the Hugo Awards, it's really exposed for being totally baseless. I think the only thing that I... I mean, horror genre has its own, the Bram Stoker. Those awards seem to be given to books that are the weirdest of the genre. That those are weird awards. I we we maybe mentioned this on the podcast at some point. I was like, I like horror short stories, and I was like, what if I, you know, read a bunch of these Bram Stoker award winners? The I read the first story to ever win that award, and it is about an evil pool toy. Yeah, so I kind of feel like maybe if the Hugo Award, it's fitting though, would would include more horror. Maybe that would like enrich the selections it would be interesting to see that i would because there's like, you're a you're a science fiction award that allows fantasy and non-science fiction i mean so you could you could include horror in there yeah it's interesting that like these they no, I don't want to say. I, like some of I, the, there's like the we talked about oh well, the way that like sci-fi evolves in the 90s and it's like 
I feel like that is very connected to the way horror kind of evolved at that time period with writers like Clive Barker and Kim Newman. And they're not really included in the, these Hugo Awards at all. But I could see... Even though there's either. a ton of overlap. And, like, Neil Gaiman comes out of that scene. Yeah. But I feel like both of Clive Barker and Newman, they could easily win Hugo Awards for some of their... Yeah. Um, what was I going to say? Something... Oh, it's appropriate that the Bram Stoker Awards are like that because that's... Because Bram Stoker's a weirdo? Yeah. It's very in the spirit of the guy that the award is named after. Yeah. Uh, and then is there any, we've, we've mentioned him a bunch, a couple times, but is there any writer that you think should have, like, that has not won a Hugo Award, that you really feel like should have won one? Like, the, the most? If you had to pick one. Well, I feel like, I mean, we mentioned Catherine and Valente, mm-hmm. like, Charlie Jane Anders, like, I mean. Didn't, oh, no, that she won for novella, right? Yeah. And I, you know, I feel like. She follows me on Twitter. I don't know if anybody knew that, but she follows me on Twitter. We're kind of basically, we're basically just best friends, basically. She wrote a really great short story that's in that people's mm-hmm. future history of the United States, the short story um, anthology. So. Yeah. And she, uh, no, never mind. I was going to make another joke about her following me on Twitter. but <laughs> Yeah, I think there's a lot of good writers coming out. And Lecky is a, a, you know, a writer to watch. She's well. She's she won for ancillary justice, right? Yeah, but I think that series is really fantastic. Yeah, you know? I'm a couple people I follow on Twitter who are not not even like writing people or like you know people in the SFF scene have just recently started reading the, those books, and it's really fun to watch them all sort of discover them and like get hype about all the various concepts and characters she's thrown out there. Yeah, so I think there's a lot of mainstream writers or up-and-coming writers that, that, you know, are worthy of these awards. Yeah. I think it's like, I think awards are stupid and dumb and bad. But this Hugo Award, I think, is one of the better awards that exists. Like, I feel like I'm rarely that mad or mad at all at their decisions. I feel like... And they did a good job of pushing out this sort of reactionary influence that tried to infiltrate the awards at one point. I feel like my goal in reading these lists was to sort of get this sort of comprehensive overview of a genre. And I think that the Hugo Award selection is so varied that you really do get that. Like when I read the Edgar Awards, they're mostly mysteries. And now Mm. the sort of the trend is to be like this, you know, this police procedural series or forensic science. So it's kind of like the changing nature of that award is over such a huge arc that it takes a long time to get to a different sort of concept but i think with the hugo awards almost every every couple of years a new genre is introduced and it sort of becomes prevalent and those awards show that did uh, did my boy lee child ever win an edgar award i'd uh maybe it's been a couple of years since i read that i don't know why i decided he's my boy (laughs) so just i just like jack reacher uh, yeah, okay, cool. So, do you have another, like, list that you're going to get into now that you're done with the Hugos? Um, my summer plan is to read the Agatha Christie books. Yeah. I by series. for Christmas. Yes, by series, by detective. So, I'm going to start with the Perot books and See, go on from there. This is where I get it from. Very recently, uh... The, the Hellboy movie, the new Hellboy movie came out and it was really bad and it made me want to go back and read Hellboy comics. And the way that I decided to do that was to go and read every comic published in the Hellboy universe 
in in universe chronological order, and my friends are making fun of me for it. And it's a hundred percent. I hundred percent get that from you. Well, you know, I'm a series committed. I will read anything, no matter if it's a series, and I start it, no matter. I mean, I'm still reading Dan Simmons. I'm. I mean, Dan Brown. So. You know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is fine because that gives us contact for the podcast. I love talking <laughs> about how how scared he is of technology. But it's almost like a chore. Like I put a whole library, get that giant book. I take a day off from work. I bang it out, and I'm like, "Whew, I'm done. I read it. I'm done. I don't have to worry about it now." But I will continue every time he writes one. I will continue reading it just out of obligation of like starting a series and never stopping until the series is finished yeah which uh you know i don't have that level of commitment we've talked before on this podcast about how i love to quit reading things (laughs) i'll read the first book in a series i'll read a book until there's like 10 pages left and then i just won't ever read the end of it you know that drives me crazy i know i know it does drives everyone crazy (laughs) I hate, and I feel like <laughs> as a librarian, when people find out I'm a librarian, they have to confess their literary sins their, to me. Their, their book crimes? Yes, their book crimes. And it's always like, oh, I never finish, insert this book, I never finish reading. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, it's either my books are overdue, or, you know, I should read more, I should... What do you think is one of the ones that you get the most, I never finish reading it? Is it, because my guess is would be Moby Dick, Infinite Jest, and Catch-22. Yeah, I think so. A lot of people claim, like, the, it's either I, I didn't finish this book or I should read it. And mm-hmm. everybody claims that they should read Infinite Jazz. It's weird. Well, we can talk about this some other time. But the the perception that book has on the internet, or at least on Twitter, is very strange to me. Where it's, like, associated with bros. And I don't understand what people think bros are. And I've always thought of David Foster Wallace as, like, that guy, my my mom <laughs> likes like Infinite Jest was like oh that's like one of my mom's favorite books and now everybody's like oh these bros talking about Infinite Jest on first dates and it's like I kind of get the concept as a person who you know I was an English major mm-hmm. in uh, college I kind of get the concept of a lit bro and there's an argument to be made that I might be one of them but it's like that's there's not a lot of people how are you all meeting all of these guys well, there's I've known like three of them I don't know any... I have not yet met a man who has finished reading that book. <laughs> so, I, I mean, mean... Have you finished reading it? Yes. You liar. No, I haven't <laughs> finished reading it. I've read a bunch of his other stuff. That's the one that I've never actually finished. And then I, I uh, always like to make the argument that Broom of the System is actually better, but that might just be because Broom of the System is the one that I finished. <laughs> Well, but I think for you lent like, it to my dad, and he he shoveled all this mortal coil before he even got to finish. I think I might have had five copies of that book that I lent to people who were going to read it. Oh, that's never. That is a book you lend to someone and you never get it back. Yeah. That's the, like an umbrella of books. That's a weird comparison. It's true, but I think like your association with David Foster Wallace with your mother is because in the eighties he was a very popular writer. Yeah, and then he became. He started publishing at a time, you know, in my late teens when I was actively purchasing. In fact, that Broom of the System was the first book that I had ever bought myself. Really? Yeah. It was like when I was 16 and I had my first job and I got my first paycheck and I cashed my first paycheck. That was what I bought. Hmm. I wonder what the first book I bought for myself is. It really depends on how you define bought for yourself. Because, like... When I was younger, when I was a kid, 
you and I would like go to the thrift shop and you'd give me like two dollars and I would get like eight or ten books. But I wasn't like with my own money, it might be uh, Man in the High Castle. Yeah, I think like because I remember that I have one of those copies. Anybody that's read a bunch of Philip K. Dick stuff in the 21st century knows that there were these printings, these paperback printings of all this stuff that had these fucking hideous like early computer design covers. And I and the like Man in the High Castle one has like a weird pixelated torso with no head and arms. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's on very it. 80s. Yeah, and I remember like I you gave me the Philip K. Dick reader, like his collection of his sign of his short stories for Christmas one year. And then, like, pretty soon after that, I remember going to the bookstore and being excited to pick up Man in the High Castle specifically. But I don't know if that's the first one I ever bought for myself. Yeah, but I feel like there's... You know how, like, people say, like, the music you listen to as a teenager is what you identify Yeah, it's like 14 is when your tastes form and you're, you're stuck in that forever. Well, I think, like, David Foster Wallace is the writer that, of, like, people of my generation came of age of and that like is iconic to them because i think like you know maybe 10 years from now people are going to be like even in jess is a dad book like every dad has a copy of that on their show like if it was going to have any kind of negative association i would think it would be like oh it's the wilco of literature yeah definitely not like it's for bros that is forever going to be baffling to me yeah like, I think- it's a dad book makes way more sense because it's very very gen x yeah, he's a very definitely. Gen X writer. Yeah. He's arguably like the most like representative of the kind of popular conception of what Gen X is like. Yeah, and I think like metafiction is a, is, I mean, it becomes prevalent in the two thousands, but I think it really is its genesis is the Gen X. Yeah, genre. It's kind of like Hemingway is like you know like you know iconic of that generation, and you know it's who's big. the most baby boomer writer? Is it Robert Heinlein? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. No, oh, it's uh James Patterson? Yeah, James Patterson. No, what is the writer of the sci the Scientology writer? Oh, L. Ron Hubbard? Yes, it's L. Ron Hubbard. Oh god. He <laughs> you know he's, he had a license that he could pilot any boat. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Good for it. It's funny, there was a this the last tangent I'm gonna go on. There was a big push at some point that that Scientology or what whatever organization legally they are or that handles this, to push his non-Dianetics writing, his sci-fi and pulp writing, uh, onto younger readers. So they made all of these, they printed all of these collections of his pulp stories and novels, and they printed like a crap ton of them, and tried to give them to libraries, and libraries would just turn them down. And so they all ended up in thrift shops, and a lot of thrift shops and used bookstores just have an enormous L. Ron Hubbard section of these, like, immaculate, in perfect condition printings of L. Ron Hubbard stories because they were just flooded with them at one point. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, our library has also gotten them because we're a science-based library, so they think that, for some reason, yeah. it's very relevant. But So if you ever are in a thrift shop or used bookstore and you see a ton of L. Ron Hubbard... Don't be like, oh, somebody loved L. Ron Hubbard and then I guess died. It's because it, it was astroturfed. Well, I feel like that's the same way. If you go to thrift shop, you're going to find, you know, a Tom Wolfe novel there. But I think that's a testament to the genuine popularity of Tom Wolfe. Bonfires like, of the Vanities. Yeah. Speaking of 80s digital covers. 
but I it's, think that's the first time they started to get into like CAD designing. So then everything was had the one that weird. I always think of is uh, what's the, what's the other one? It's kind of like a 1920s sci-fi aesthetic. It's very strange. There's a specific. What's the cover with the building on it? You know what I'm talking about? I think that's Bonfires of the Vanity. No, it's 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 not Bonfire. I'm gonna hold on. Give me a second. I'm gonna find it. Um, not the right stuff. Maybe it is Bonfire of the Vanities. Bibliography. Uh, a Man in Full. A Man in Full. A Man in Full has this. Yeah, it has this cover with like the skyline, and in his name is huge on the cover in red, and the title is very small. And in the O of his name, there's like an eyeball. And that image is, I've never read that book. The image of that cover is burned into my brain because there's like four copies on every bookshelf in every thrift shop. It is the, of Herb Alpert and his Tijuana Brass (laughs) of novels. It's true. He's kind of like the Dan Brown of the 80s. Like, not that he, he's definitely a better writer. Mm-hmm. But just the sheer volume of the amount of books that he was... It's like John Irving in the late 80s. Yeah. Like, you're, you're going to find, like, The World According to Garp, the brown paperback that was iconic at the time. You're going to find that at the thrift shop all the time. Yeah. So there's probably three copies of it somewhere in this house. At, oh, yeah, probably. At, at any given time. I mean, there's some Herb Alpert and his <laughs> Brass albums in this house, I know for a fact. But, you know, that has more to do with me being perpetually the guy who gets into things ironically and then ends up liking them unironically see also earnest movies right that's true <laughs> you're well, lucky it didn't happen with l ron hubbard <laughs> <laughs> thank you all right uh i think we're good oh so we should announce what we're doing next right yeah so next episode is going to be volume two of saga of the swamp thing i think in the original printings of the trades this one was called love and death uh, so that'll be cool. Is this when we finally get to meet John Constantine? I think we're one volume away from okay. meeting John Constantine. I think the story that ends this, I think the, the I think maybe the first issue of the next volume is when he shows up. Actually, I don't remember. Well, we're close to meeting him, but I don't know if it's in this volume. Uh, and then after that, we have to do a novella, and we haven't picked it. No, interesting. Oh, we haven't talked about it at all. Do you got any ideas? You want to you want to call a shot off the dome right now? And pick something? Do you think we should go deep, dark into Russian literature? We talked about doing the death of Ivan Ilyich. Yeah, let's do that. We'll let's do, do that. that. We're going to do the death of Ivan Ilyich. That's good because we just did a big genre thing. And what did we do? Oh, we did that bad Saul Bellow before that. Well, it was a learning experience. Let's put it that way. This worked out much better. This was another... The Word for World is Forest is another one where I was like, I like this writer. I've never read this novella. Let's do it for the podcast. That actually, This one worked out because I liked this. No, it was a good choice. What kind of day did you have to not work out? That was a bad one. Well, it... It was it, a good discussion came out of it, I it, think. Yeah. But, but it was kind of like, if you want to read Saul Bellow, read his novels. But that was bad because it was one of those books where I didn't like it and it kind of made me like him less. Speaking of dad books, though, that's what it should be called. Speaking of that, dad was books. a very baby boomer book. <laughs> exactly. All right, we've been going on for a long time. We're almost at two hours of recording. Yikes! Uh, but we had a lot to talk about, and uh, that's fine. So, Swamp Thing, Death of Ivan Illich. Spoiler alert! Stay tuned. Spoiler.